our family didn't have family vacations. We didn't go to the beach in the summertime. You know, we, we, we wrestled. You know, I don't think I did anything that no one can do or else I wouldn't have done it. It's almost like I was more excited for him to win than, 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 I, than I cared about me winning. You know, that was when I really, truly understood that you can't get on that podium without being a well-rounded wrestler. There's no reason to sleep in. You know, I, I don't, uh, you know, I think sleeping in is a little bit of being lazy. Wrestling is just like one big puzzle. There's like a counterattack to every attack that the opponent has, and it's just fun trying to, like, figure everything out. No, I think you had some uh, pretty good questions, pretty in-depth. Only fault was it I thought I could pin everybody, you know, so going into the semifinals, I didn't really have a game plan. I was like super, super, super intent. All I cared about was wrestling. You know, that's what I love to do. I want to stand there. I want to, I want to get in your face. I want to beat you up. For 17 years, it was like, it was what I was training for, you know, and this is potentially my last tournament. It's like, this is it. It's like eight mile, like you only get one shot. I felt like he took what was mine, you know, and um, I was trying to take what was his, so just kind of how things go. Welcome to episode 39 of the Sudden History Wrestling Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Earl Smith. If you'd like to leave show feedback, you can always find me on Twitter at EarlD1CW or for the show at Sudden History. Or if you're old school, you can email me, Earl at D1CollegeWrestling.net. I have a feeling this show could get some reactions from people, so fire away. Uh, Also, you can do that whole rate and review thing on iTunes, I suppose. Uh, So for this week's episode, I'm going to need something from you, the listener. I'm really going to need you to to suspend reality for a little bit. Use your imagination. Since it's the summer, we're still a few months away from the college season getting underway. I feel like it's the perfect time for a fun podcast or even nonsensical podcast and this could be a little bit of both I think again I'd love to hear your reactions because I feel like this could be either really creative or really dumb Um, of course since I'm talking about this for I don't know an hour or so um, I'm aiming for it to be considered creative but I'll accept it if uh, you're gonna say it's dumb so when I was uh, putting in research for this and uh, developing a little outline my wife asked what I was working on podcast-wise. Well, babe, I'm glad you asked. So, remember, Back to the Future 2, when Marty went into the future, buys a sports almanac from the 1900s, Biff finds it, uses the time machine to go back to 1955, becomes a multimillionaire from sports gambling, and creates an alternative timeline in 1985, and it's uh, vastly different from the one Marty knows. This is what it's going to be like, except with wrestling. And she proceeded to remind me she's never watched any of the Back to the Future movies. After a few minutes of questioning her childhood and the way she was raised, she said, isn't that the butterfly effect? I said, I guess it's, yeah, same thing, I guess. Well, this is the Back to the Future Part 2 slash Butterfly Effect Wrestling Podcast couple of weeks ago, maybe even a month ago now, I did a podcast with the Inside Trip guys. I got the idea for this show when I was listening to the repeat of that show. At one point, we were analyzing Lance Palmer's career, and I mentioned that if Palmer would have taken a red shirt, he would have 
would he have actually beaten a sophomore Kyle Dake in 2011 and changed history? That made me think, what other wrestling history could have been changed if a decision was made differently? Or what was the impact and repercussions of decisions that were made in a certain manner? Uh, it's going to get clearer to you as you listen. Um, now a few ground rules. Whenever I do these hypothetical deals, I like to put out my ground rules so you know where I'm coming from. If not, the Seton Hall Pirates of the world will try to rip me apart with some sort of technicality. With this exercise, I'm not going to question actual match results. We saw the results of the match. Of course, we can say what would happen if he lost, what would happen if so-and-so won. Until we could say that until we're blue in the face, and frankly, I don't think that's too creative. Since this whole idea was born, questioning whether a possible opponent of Kyle Dakes could have kept him from making history and winning four NCAA titles, let's stay on that same train of thought. Now, it may seem like I'm beating up on Kyle Dake, but the truth is, especially early in his career, there were a few guys that he ended up never wrestling that could have disrupted his quest for four titles. Not his fault. You can only wrestle whomever lines up across from you. And being the competitor that he is, I'm sure he would have liked to meet some of these guys. Let's get into Dake's freshman year. The number one ranked wrestler entering the 2009-2010 season was Iowa State's Nick Gallick. Gallick was a two-time All-American who had finished third in 2009 and was the highest ranked returner at 141 pounds. You also had Reese Humphrey, but he was coming up from a second place finish at 133. Early in the 2009-10 season, Gallick suffered what was called a deep thigh bruise. He tried to wrestle through it, and in his final match, the early season dual meet versus Iowa, he struggled but defeated Dan LeClaire. It was a pretty ugly match. You watched it, you could tell something was going on. You didn't know whether it was an injury or conditioning. Anyways, he was shut down after that match, hoped to get a sixth year of eligibility, which he did not get. Was he the caliber of wrestler to beat a freshman Kyle Dake? I think so. Um, he was pretty well-rounded. Not outstanding in any one position more than the other, but very good overall. Would he definitively beaten Dake? I can't really say that. Also during Dake's freshman year, a returning All-American Kellen Russell takes a red shirt. Russell was fresh off a 7th place finish as a sophomore, though he entered that tournament as the top seed and won the second of his four Big Ten titles. At that point in time, Kellen had wins over the two-time NCAA champ Jay Jaggers, among others. Russell was definitely an intriguing matchup for Dake, as they were both pretty similar. Russell was excellent defensively, could scramble with the best of them. I always thought he was actually an underrated scrambler. He didn't have that long, lanky body type that most people associate with scramblers but he also didn't come out on the wrong side of too many scramble situations. He also had a remarkable record in overtime matches. All of these traits are pretty similar to Kyle Dake. Now let's take it a step farther with Kellen Russell. Kellen took off the 2010 season with the intentions of getting bigger and growing into a 149 pounder. 
thankful that didn't materialize like planned, and Russell ended up winning NCAA titles at 141 in 2011 and 2012. Well, what if Russell did bulk up enough to feel like he could compete at 149? Let's throw him into the mix at 149 with Dake, Frank Molinaro. Who knows what happens? Definitely not a shoe-in for Dake. Remember, that was the last year that Kyle lost in college, falling to Kevin LaValle in the EIWA Finals. In my opinion, at that point in time, if they wrestled 10 times, I think Russell wins maybe 5 or 6 of them. Alright, I'm going to go off on a slight tangent for a second. If, in fact, Kellen Russell wrestles 49 in the 2011 season, does that prevent Eric Grahalis from becoming one of the biggest punching bags in the history of the Matt.com message boards. Grahalis was a redshirt freshman in 2011, and he ended up competing at 149 while Russell was at 141. Grahalis was a more natural 141 at that point in time, so if he was competing immediately at 141, does he become competitive earlier? Maybe All-Americans as a freshman or sophomore? and saves himself years worth of punishment on the message boards. So I mentioned this on the podcast with the Inside Trip guys. What about Lance Palmer? He never redshirted. If he takes a redshirt at some point, finishes his career in 2011, he certainly would have been a title contender as he beat Molinero twice in 2010. It's my opinion that Dake was probably better in all of the positions that Palmer was good in, uh, and I didn't think Palmer was dynamic on his feet enough to take down Dake, but again, it'd really make things interesting. And one more relating to Kyle Dake's four NCAA titles, what if Darian Caldwell never went rollerblading? Caldwell was fresh off one of the most incredible matches of my lifetime when he beat Brent Metcalf for the NCAA title in 2009. Well, Caldwell had a rollerblading accident, injures his shoulder, an injury that would never fully heal for the next two years. He redshirted the 2010 season, then attempted to finish his career in 2011. Darian was undefeated in the top seed coming into the 2011 NCAs. However, in a match versus Eric Grahalis, well, hey, maybe if Russell's at 49, Grahalis never wrestles Caldwell, but I don't think it mattered because his shoulder just wasn't right. I saw him at the ACCs that year. He looked fine, just not outstanding like he had been in the past. Anyhow, his shoulder was pulled out by Grahalis, couldn't put it in in enough time, doesn't continue in the tournament. A healthy or even semi-healthy Darian Caldwell was incomparable, unpredictable, and electric. Kyle Dake definitely did not have to deal with anyone who had his offensive firepower. Again, this wasn't meant to disrespect or diminish the achievements of Kyle Dake, I don't mean to do that. I've had him on the Sudden History Show. I like him a lot. So we'll analyze how one of his decisions affected the rest of the wrestling world. Heading into the 2012-13 season, Kyle was asked to wrestle David Taylor at a catchweight at the All-Star Classic. Dake didn't want to go at a catchweight. He just figured he'd go up to 165 for the match and likely for the first half of the season before cutting back down to 157. Well, after beating Taylor, and uh, it was actually kind of an ugly match. Um, it was very hyped up uh, at American University in Washington, D.C. 
Um, I remember being very excited for it, but it really wasn't a good match. Um, anyhow, Dake wins, and he's looking at the prospect of going through the season only a couple pounds away from his natural weight and a victory over Taylor under his belt. Dake decides to stay at 165 for that season. That begs the question, if he stays at 157, how does that affect David Taylor's legacy? You know, David Taylor has a ton of fans, super popular wrestler, but he had two official losses in the 2012-13 season of Dake. His career record ended up 134-3. and Had he won, uh, he had won the uh, Hodge Trophy in the previous season and the following season. If Dake's not around, could he have won a third? You know, of course, you'd have to contend with Dake winning four titles, but Taylor would have had a more impressive bonus number. Um, Taylor would have then finished his career, most likely on a three-year winning streak, with his NCAA Finals loss to Bubba Jenkins as the only blemish on his record. Right now, if you're comparing Taylor's career to other 165-pounders of the last 20 years or so, you have a lot of impressive ones to go through. Multiple-time champs such as Donnie Pritzloff, Johnny Hendricks, Mark Perry, Jordan Burroughs, Dake, Alex Deeringer. At this point, you may be able to make the argument that he's even number three or four on that list. Give him another title with another undefeated season, no Dake in the conversation, you could argue he has the best college career out of any of those guys in that group. Moving along on the theme of four-time NCAA champs, Logan Stieber. Since I mentioned a few of the title contenders Kyle Dake missed during his four title runs, how about Stieber? At least one year, maybe two, he missed out on going through Andrew Long at the Big Tens and NCAAs. Long was arrested and dismissed from Penn State in the summer of 2011 after he placed third during that half season at Penn State. Long logged wins over multiple-time All-Americans Tyler Graff, Scott Sentes, B.J. Futrell, and Mike Gray. Of course, him being a threat to Logan Stieber would assume that Long had the proper motivation training and lifestyle which of course is difficult to assume so most of the time when we say what if injury wise it's usually a bad thing in Logan Stieber's case his true freshman season it actually ended up benefiting him in the long run at least when you're talking legacy Stieber lost three matches wrestling at 125 pounds in the Cliff Keen Las Vegas Invitational to Jared Patterson, Jason Laura, and Frank Pirelli. After that tournament, he had a hand injury and didn't wrestle the rest of the season, got to use it as a redshirt year. Now, two of those guys, Patterson and Pirelli, were all Americans, so it's no shame in losing to either, and we don't know exactly when he hurt the hand. However, seeing those results and knowing that he was wrestling a weight class lower than he would ever compete at again, does a true freshman, Logan Stieber, beat the undefeated NCAA champion from that 2011 season, Anthony Robles? I'd bet against it. Closer to home, he would have had to go through the returning NCAA champion, Matt McDonough, in the Big Ten Conference. 
who also would have to contend with a senior Brandon Persine, who handed McDonough his only other loss of the season in the Midlands Finals. Of course, also on the Steber subject, this one has been debated endlessly since 2012, but if Jordan Oliver is given a takedown at the end of the NCAA Finals match, it would have thrown a monkey wrench into the plans of becoming a four-time NCAA champ, and then vaulted Oliver into a very exclusive three-time NCAA champions club. That horse has been beaten for the last five-plus years, so I don't even want to touch it too much. Okay, so staying in the Steber family, let's move along to Logan's younger brother, Hunter. I don't want to make all of these what-ifs injury-related, because we could talk all night about all of the guys who could have been great wrestlers if they didn't get hurt. Lots of these guys, though, get hurt early and never even get a chance to succeed. I mentioned Hunter Steber because we got two years of seeing just how good he was finishing six as a true freshman and third after earning the number one seed in 2013. If he stays healthy, bumps up to 149 after taking a red shirt in 2014, does he beat Drake Howdeshell in 2015? I don't see why he couldn't. Uh, the bigger question is, next year, as a fifth-year senior, how does he match up against a sophomore Zane Rutherford? Zane was excellent that season, but still not quite on the level of a 2000, his 2017 Hodge Trophy season. There's at least an argument to be made that a healthy hunter stops Rutherford. Speaking of Zane Rutherford, a shout-out to my man Brandon from the inside trip for this one. What happens if Rutherford does not compete as a true freshman, assuming he redshirts is competing at 149 in 2015, not Logan Stieber's weight class, does he take the first step towards winning four NCAA titles? Again, the top three at that weight class were Haudeschelt, David Habit, and Jason Sertzis. An opponent that Rutherford's constantly linked to is Aaron Pico. The big question is, what happens if Pico stays in high school, goes the traditional route of wrestling D1? He would have been a true freshman this past season. Pico has never lost to Zane. Would the 2017 folk-style version of Rutherford been able to handle Pico? Who would Pico even be wrestling for? We can only speculate. So let's stay in the Penn State family and look at a decision that was made this past season. Kale Sanderson brought true freshman Mark Hall out of redshirt later in the year than most freshmen typically do. Hall goes out and wins an NCAA title. In the semis, Hall beats fellow freshman undefeated Zahid Valencia in a controversial bout, though he still would have had to go through a tough Bo Jordan in the finals. It's not hard to imagine Zahid finishing off an undefeated freshman season with one chip under his belt. The exact importance of this decision in reference to Valencia still remains to be seen over the next few years, but it could be huge if he wins a couple more NCAA titles. Since I mentioned Cale Sanderson, let's move on to him. Now, I'm not going to do the whole what-if-he-never-left-Iowa-State deal. That seems too obvious to me. What if Cale Sanderson chose to compete internationally as long as Jordan Burroughs? That would have put him competing through to the 2008 Olympics, possibly into 2009. In addition to racking up a bunch of medals during a otherwise lean period of time for USA Wrestling, 
how does it affect the coaching landscape for college wrestling? Who knows if he you know, wouldn't have got the Iowa State position after the 2006 season. You know, it's doubtful that Penn State would have wanted to take a chance on the inexperienced Sanderson when the job opened up in 2009. If Kale wasn't an official coach at Iowa State with that great 2005 recruiting class that included NCAA champions Jake Varner and David Zabriskie signed on. I mean, the whole post-college, post-collegiate scene was uh, much different at that time. Today, with all the RTCs being so prevalent, guys like Jordan Burroughs, Kyle Dake, David Taylor, Logan Stever, Jordan Oliver, James Green, these guys can focus solely on wrestling. They don't have to coach if they don't want to. Some of these guys have been volunteer assistants for a year or two, but I think they probably found it best to just concentrate on their own career. Heck, Brett Metcalf finished his collegiate career in 2010 and is just becoming a college coach for the first time in 2017-18. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into this one as I, I could, and I probably will do a show in the future about all the dominoes that fell coaching-wise in 2006, and I'll actually touch on a little more of that stuff later on. Let's uh, stick with that same time period. Cornell, Ivy League Wrestling. Over the years, Rob Cole has used the Ivy League gray shirt for some of his best wrestlers. Gabe Dean, Nashawn Garrett, Brian Robuto, Cam Simaz, Mac Lunas, Mike Gray. One stud that didn't, Troy Nickerson. A few years back, I spoke with Troy and asked him why he didn't take the gray shirt. And he said it really wasn't prevalent at that point in time. Also, he didn't say it, but he was the top lightweight in the class of 2005, so he was ready for the big time. However, let's imagine Troy does sit out the 2006 season. Well, who did he beat in the NCAA semis that year? None other than the undefeated Nick Simmons in a match that still blows my mind. Nickerson actually reversed Simmons for their deciding points. If there's no Troy Nickerson around, does Nick Simmons no longer qualify for my best non-NCA champions of the 2000s list. Only if he would have gotten by Joe Dubuque in the finals, a guy that he split matches with over the course of his collegiate career. Another one, this is pretty well documented. I remember hearing about it at the time. Um, and he also went through it in the My Name is Jordan documentary by Flo. What happens if Jordan Burroughs wrestled, at, wrestled against South Dakota State? So early in the 2009-10 season, Jordan's grandfather passed away. He left the team to be with his family. When he returned, Burroughs tore up his knee against Steve Brown of Central Michigan, and the injury ended his 2010 season. Per NCAA rules, Jordan was able to take a medical redshirt because he had never redshirted previously. However, if Jordan would have competed in the South Dakota State duel, it would have made him ineligible for a redshirt due to competing in a higher percentage of his team's duels. Now let's take it a step further. If Jordan is a senior in 2010 who finishes his career either not competing due to injury or being a guy that tries to tough his way through it and is ultimately a shell of his former self, does he ever become the Jordan Burroughs that we know today? I mean, the dude was, 
he finished off a Hodge Trophy season 2011, rolls into making the world team, then winning a world title. I would argue that if his college career ends in 2010, he probably doesn't. Let's go back a year prior and talk about the Nebraska Cornhuskers in the 2008-2009 season. Would the Cornhuskers have won the NCAA championship if Paul Donahoe and Kenny Jordan don't pose for pictures on an adult website? Some of you guys may have forgot about that one. Donahoe was the 2007 NCAA champion. He also finished third the next season at in 2008. Jordan was a returning NCAA qualifier who placed fourth in the Big 12 in 2008 in a loaded 133-pound weight class that featured NCAA champion Coleman Scott and All-Americans Nick Fanthorpe and Tyler McCormick. The team title in 2009 was won by Iowa with 96.5 points, which was the lowest point total by a championship team since Arizona State won the title with 93 points in 1988. Well, Nebraska was in fourth place, 18 points behind the Hawkeyes. At the 2009 championships, Donahoe wrestled for Edinburgh and was the NCAA runner-up and racked up 16 team points for the Fighting Scots. Jordan was slated to compete at 141 that season. At that point, 141 was a really goofy weight class. Personally, I could not stand doing rankings for that weight class in that time period. Unseated Ryan Williams of ODU made the finals. Two other unseated wrestlers, Alex Crom and a freshman named Frank Molinero, also got onto the podium. So it's not out of the question that Jordan, a talented but usually not consistent guy, could have made a run. And really all they would have needed if Donahoe's performance was similar was two and a half team points. Very doable. Okay, here's something from the year before. What if current NCAA qualifying rules were in place in 2008 and Craig Henning doesn't fall victim to the Craig Henning rules? During the 2007-2008 season, it was the last year where the Big Ten was allocated seven qualifiers at every weight class. There were then two Big Ten wild cards that were selected. However, they had to come from the eighth place finishers. Well, Craig Henning of Wisconsin was the returning NCAA runner-up at 157 pounds, and he was the five seed in a pretty tough Big Ten weight class. At the Big Ten's first match, he loses to the number four seed C.P. Schlater and goes to a barbecue after being eliminated by Purdue's Nick Bertucci. That loss knocked Henning out of the top eight in the conference, therefore making him ineligible for a wild card. Earlier that season, Henning defeated the eventual NCAA champion Jordan Lean. In the previous season, he beat the 2008 NCAA runner-up Mike Poeta at Big Tens. So, does Henning win an NCAA title in 2008? I would say it's probably doubtful, but there's an outside chance. I mean, every year when I hear people complaining about how a guy from their favorite team with a record you know, slightly better than 500 got snubbed for an NCAA berth, I laugh and think about Henning, the returning NCAA runner-up, who didn't qualify for nationals. Sticking with 157-pounders, here's a good one from just a few years ago. 2015 NCAA Championship quarterfinals. What happens if the referees and the official scores got the score correct, 
or take the time to correct the score when Ian Miller lost, and I'm doing the air quotes, lost to Brian Robuto, 11-9 in sudden victory. It's, it's truly an unbelievable thought with all the technology we have available to us that just two years ago, a stud like Ian Miller lost because the score was not correct. In the semifinals, Robuto met up with Dylan Ness, who ended up getting injured. Then he met freshman Isaiah Martinez and was majored in the finals. Does Ian Miller put up a better fight? Miller took IMR to sudden victories in the semis the next season in an outstanding match. Definitely not out of the realm of possibility to think that Ian Miller could have a title under his belt and handed IMR his first career collegiate loss. Regardless of the possible result, Miller was robbed and we were robbed of all the fireworks that could have taken place in the NCAA Finals matchup between IMR and Miller. Okay, so here's the big one. I'm going to leave you with this. Think about the ramifications if Steve Mako does not leave Iowa. If you remember correctly, Steve takes off the 2004 season for a redshirt with an attempt to make the Olympic team. He does not, then transfers to Oklahoma State. He wins the Hodge Trophy in 2005 for that historic Cowboy team with five NCAA champions, then finishes as a runner-up as a senior to Cole Conrad. Now, okay, let's operate under the assumption that Mako sits out that 2004 season, but returns to Iowa City for the 2005 and 2006 season. What does it all mean? Well, glad you asked. Steve would have made a difference in a dual meet loss to Northwestern in the 2005 season. Uh, It was pretty embarrassing to Hawkeye fans um, and the Hawkeye wrestlers at the time. If you add first place points from the Midland score instead of seventh place points that Matt Fields racked up, the Hawkeyes would have won the Midlands by a half point, and that's not without any bonus points, and it was Illinois who ended up winning that tournament. Now looking at the NCAA championships in 2005, in real life the Hawkeyes finished seventh place with 66 points. Now, two of those came from heavyweight Matt Fields. Mako earned 23 team points for the Cowboys. If you to add those 23 points onto Iowa's point total, take out Fields' two points, they would have had 87 points, good enough for second place. Even without Mako's points, OSU still would have won by a healthy margin. Moving on to the 2006 season, with Mako in the lineup instead of against them, they actually would have upset the top-ranked Oklahoma State Cowboys. They also would have defeated Michigan in the national duels and possibly Michigan State. They actually beat Iowa that year. Um, They could have beaten Michigan State if Mako were to pin. At the Big Tens, the Hawkeyes finished in 6th place with 86 points, despite getting nothing from the 285-pound weight class. Add in second place points since Mako never beat Conrad that year, that would have put Iowa in fourth place. Not great by their standards, but much better in sixth place. Now, again, give Iowa second place points at the NCAs that season in a weight class where they had no points, another second place team finish. So, in closing, 
does Iowa fire Jim Zaleski coming off back-to-back NCAA runner-up finishes, throw an extra couple dual meet wins, one over the top-ranked Cowboys and another Midlands title. I guess they still could have, but that would have been pretty ballsy. Now, what are the implications that not firing Zaleski after the 2006 season have? Well, does Tom Brand start to have success at Virginia Tech with Brett Metcalf, Jay Borschel, and crew? Does Tom Brand take the Ohio State job? Because if you remember, the Ohio State job was what started to knock over all the dominoes that offseason. If Brands were to have taken the Ohio State job, how long is Tom Ryan at Hofstra? Who takes the Oregon State job that Zaleski took and is still at? If Brands were to have success and elevate the status of the Virginia Tech program, does Kevin Dresser ever come into the picture? Dresser ended up having a great career at Virginia Tech, but he was considered a high school coach at the time and was kind of in the right place, right time for Tech. If Kevin Dresser's not in the picture and doesn't hire Tony Roby as his top assistant from Binghamton, how long is Tony Roby at Binghamton? If Roby has a long tenure there, do, do we even find out who pa- Papalizio is? So, all right, that's it. I'm going to call it quits from here. I could probably go forever down that rabbit hole. But again, let me know what you think about this one. And before I go, I'm going to remind you to check in on the Matt Talk Podcast Network. There's all sorts of stuff up there now. Coincidentally, it all revolves around wrestling. Speaking of coincidences, got a sweet Matt Talk shirt on right now from Compound Wrestling as I'm recording this. Hopefully it's brought out my inner Jason Bryant for this show. Also, I wanted to give a shout-out to all of our Junior World Team members. Each team had a champion, which I believe is the first time that we've had that happen all in the same year. So we've got a bright future internationally, and I'm even more fired up than before for the seniors who will compete in a few weeks. So after all this, my head's spinning a little bit. That's all I've got time for tonight. How the hell do I get off this stage?